Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a warm day in the city of Westminster, which is very deserted, might I add, at the moment, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Helen McNally. Helen is the owner and service manager at Mobile Care Services Limited, a domiciliary care provider operating across North Warwickshire, South East Staffordshire and South West Leicestershire. Helen, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be invited. It's an absolute pleasure having you as well. Now, um, this podcast first and foremost is all about the topic of leadership and really bringing that into focus and that's really coming um, under a a real strain and a real test at the moment isn't it with the whole COVID-19 pandemic and individuals trying to navigate their businesses and organisations through that. So for somebody like yourself who's working within the care industry how has it been for you over the last uh, few weeks because I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge. Yes, it certainly has. Um, we established our service 29 years ago, and over that time have encountered many different challenges, but um, this pandemic has posed the greatest challenge for our customers, our staff, and the service itself, yes. Yeah. It's often said that this is um, unprecedented uh, times and uh, we've never seen anything like this before. So you say that um, you've never witnessed anything like this or had to take decisions as difficult as this throughout your career before? Yes, it's absolutely the case. I think um, certainly when um, it was realised that the pandemic had moved over to the UK, um, the understanding of COVID-19 and the effects were um, not so well understood, obviously, as they are today. Uh, the knowledge is gaining every day. Um, but I think my greatest anxiety was for the people we support, who, by the nature of needing support, are vulnerable. The majority of them are elderly, and certainly many of them are extremely frightened about the implications of this virus and what it could mean for them. Mm-hmm. And in addition, we have our staff, um, and I think particularly since it was noted that more younger people were also passing away, particularly healthcare workers, those working on the front line. So I think the level of anxiety of both people that we're working with and our own staff has become extremely heightened over the time. And that's completely understandable as well. And um, it's very well documented um, the issues um, that there are within the care industry about the lack um, of availability of personal protective equipment, for example. Um, in terms of the government's overall response to uh, the crisis, um, how do you feel about that from your perspective? Well, we are an independent provider. We work closely with three local authorities who commission our support and also two different BHGs, health authorities. Uh, But we have always um, acted independently on behalf of our customers and staff and have made sure that we are as prepared as possible for any eventuality, whatever that might be, whether it's long freezing temperatures or floods or whatever. We've had to ensure uh, the safety of our staff and our customers. And with this particular pandemic, one of the things that I and my uh, management team did was we looked at how it was being managed in other countries, what steps were being taken, what PPE was needed, 
and we took steps ourselves to attempt to provide that for our staff if it wasn't going to be forthcoming. And as it happens, there are the access to PPE is desperately short at the moment. But fortunately, we have um, been able to take steps so that our staff and customers at the moment are all fully protected. And that has been, um, that has provided us with a, a great level of comfort for the staff. Moving forward and depending on how long this uh, it, it takes for the systems to catch up for the stocks to become more ready available, that could pose us problems in the future. But um, at the moment, I think we, we're pretty well prepared. Certainly good to hear that the preparations um, are on track. And uh, it was said um, in uh, Parliament today by um, Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab that the government is going to really learn its lessons from uh, this whole crisis as well. Um, If we do consider that it has been a tremendous learning curve, both for governments across the world and also businesses, is there anything that trying to navigate um, through this pandemic has actually taught you as a business leader? Well, Personally, I think, although I'm not a pessimist, I do regard myself as a realist and tend to um, look at the worst-case scenarios, prepare for that, and then whatever happens, you're usually in, the, in a better position than, than you would be had you not taken those steps. Um, the issue about providing PPE, not only for protection for the, for the staff and ultimately for the, the customers we support. Um, the provision of that gives people the confidence, those are customers, that they aren't going to contract it from the staff and from our staff that they aren't going to be passing that on. That has made a huge difference. Um, but I think it's about the ability to be able to act quickly um, and to try and see where the issues are going to be, where Problems are being identified in other countries which are ahead of us by a number of weeks and taking what steps are possible to ensure that you address those steps yourself. It has been a terrible shock for everybody, absolutely, Um, and and a worry for those who haven't been able to um, obtain certainly the PPE that's necessary. It's certainly um, a very difficult time and um, a real reality check as well for uh, governments all over the world. Um, Something that um, we do hear quite often, however, is that times of adversity and crisis like this do increase um, resilience uh, within businesses for one hand, but also they bring out the best within people as well. Um, Do you think personally, Helen, that it's possible to actually become a good um, leader or even a good employee without having experience of challenges like this, pushing the boundaries and really being thrust out of your comfort zone? I think it's definitely part of the the day-to-day life that when you're uh, working in um, domiciliary care, um, that you do come across these challenges, which... Um, pose the most in, incredible difficulties for people, but it is at times like this that people step up to the plate, and our staff have been only magnificent in um, providing support, extra support, and making sure 
that our customers are as safe as possible. Um, when the, uh, the when there were signs, the first signs of uh, the uh, COVID nineteen um, crept up into the areas where we work. Um, initially, there were I think we had thirty eight staff off over a very short period of time who were symptomatic. Um, as soon as they were able to safely return to work, they did. The incidence of general sickness has fallen. People are working over and above to ensure that every single customer support uh, call is, is delivered. And um, it is at times like this and that people really do shine and certainly our staff could not be could not be uh, more applauded or more recognised over the last six, eight, ten weeks, they have only been magnificent and it, it brings the best out in people. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, really does. And um, it's a huge reminder to leaders as well, um, everywhere, that it's just as much about the people around them as it is about um, themselves as well because being a leader isn't just a one man or one woman operation. It's very much about the collective, isn't it, in any um, context? Absolutely, 100%. Um, as the, the manager of the company, I expect to lead by example and uh, to have our management team and throughout the company. I think that is uh, the common uh, thread that we all hold, that we're all in this together and we all work as hard as we can to ensure uh, that the service continues to a, to a high standard. So I certainly get the impression, Helen, that your uh, leadership style is very much a uh, team and people orientated in that sense. Um, what would you say are some of the influences behind that style of leadership that you have implemented at Mobile Care? I think looking back on my own experience, um, I will say it goes back a long time. I, my first, um, full-time job was working with a large national, uh, charity where they provided, um, residential and, uh, day services for people with found and multiple disabilities. And within that organization, I came across people with such dedication, commitment and loyalty to the organization it showed me uh, that whatever difficulties we were to face, if I could believe in those that managed me, then we would get through it. And we did. And I think that that has set an example for myself now that you know, we, we, I am utterly committed to ensuring the continuity of the service that we provide. And... That is a feeling that runs throughout the company, I think. Mm. And do you think, Helen, that um, good and effective leadership, particularly within the uh, care industry, is recognised as much as it should be in this country? I don't think before this it was at all. <laughs> but I think maybe this is starting to uh, shine a light on the service, which unfortunately I think has been for for many years. Um, 
and sort of assume they're on the service. It's, I don't think the scale of support of people in their own homes has been acknowledged or recognised or the um, or what that means to those people that are in receipt of a good service, that they can remain in their own homes with support, um, but that support must be of a high quality. And I don't think the importance of that across the country has been recognised until this point. It certainly has been a wake-up call for the um, importance of uh, critical uh, workers, especially within the uh, the care industry and the importance of the uh, the sector as a whole. And uh, there are some care providers who um, I know are hoping at the moment that it does provide a springboard for a root and branch um, review of how the whole um, sector is working at the moment. Um, do you think that uh, this potentially could pave the way for that to happen? I really hope that it does. I really believe that it should and um, I'm hoping now that this gives the opportunity unfortunately as it has arisen but that this gives people the opportunity to reevaluate the service that is being provided and the scale of the service that is being provided up and down the country uh, to some of our most frail and vulnerable people I'd certainly hope that um, it does. And um, if we do think about the uh, the future again before we do uh, wrap things up, uh, Helen, um, do tell me what you um, imagine the next uh, 12 months holds for yourself and for mobile care services and also what you hope to achieve in that time, not just in navigating COVID-19, but also in coming out of the other side of the pandemic and beyond that. Now that we are coming to terms with the uh, <laughs> with managing the situation at the moment. Um, I mean, a number of things have uh, come to light, I think, which has improved our understanding and our hope that we will get through this in, in probably a better way than I originally anticipated. We have had a number of customers now um, who have either been identified as being... Um, positive for COVID-19 or who have been symptomatic. I think in the first stages it was felt that because they were over a certain age, maybe in the 80s or 90s, and also very vulnerable, that that was not going to be very good news. But all of our customers so far to date have survived and are living now back at home. Um, For those people who have been into hospital and come home, they are now on the road to recovery and that has given all of us an enormous boost to know that um, so many of our customers have survived this. Um, Moving forward, we do hope that the government will re-evaluate the role of the social care sector as a whole and look at the importance of the service the range of services that are being provided both in domiciliary care and in residential care. And um, I would like to see a re-evaluation of services and for for their role to be um, held with greater regard in, in all respects. 
I would certainly agree with that, uh, Helen. Um, let's do hope that um, uh, there is much more recognition for the industry going forward. And what I think would actually be fantastic for the listeners on the programme as well is if we perhaps um, revisit this in a few months' time when the fog starts to lift and um, see not just how mobile care services is getting along by having you back on the programme, but also looking at how the sector is progressing and whether that those hopes really are being borne out in the future. But for now, I have to say it's been incredibly insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the programme today. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it, Helen. Thank you so much. Um, coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, which is the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services for individuals and families. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz. And that's coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when of course um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right yes um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that it, we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the, uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is, are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they, they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face-to-face or whether that is um, online, uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's it's very challenging um, to... Um, Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, yes. an investment management firm to help you, um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop, uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post Brexit uh, and where 
the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt, I think uh, it, maybe Elizabeth, quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because. Uh, I, th- I think it's 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 a it's unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also yeah. quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or, you know, that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um now, looking at a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised, 
here, Liz. Uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a, a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, left the European Union without, without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more, s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next 12 months? Um, I think I think that's, that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst you know 31st of January came and went, um, you know we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, um, and for for UK um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know. The, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Euro- in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of in- intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we're, we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posi- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation, and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yes, the same piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, um, absolutely, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yes. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the SEA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, 
I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat yes. funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is, has always been that the polluter pays, but the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might well want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could. <laughs> Um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to, to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter. Um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Now, I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at, um, at the operations of PIMFOR again, it's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different 
uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organisations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know the values that we have as an organisation. We we are a small organisation. Uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt. And I, I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or, or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think and because of the time here, we... We, I, I must start to wrap up, but um, perhaps I can ask Liz, looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty, what are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our, well, our key priority this, this next 12 months is, is, is to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we, we have been lobbying uh, a fair bit on this, but because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision, mm. because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is, is just um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector as a, as a force for good and as an integral part of a, of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental wellbeing uh, is, is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be uh, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been <laughs> an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.